Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Shelly was in the first service, so I couldn't mention this, but I'm, I'm wearing my favorite shirt this morning. It's courtesy of Papa Murphy's. It's got the Papa Murphy's tag right here on the... Got it at a used uh, place some time back. I didn't steal it from Papa Murphy's. I don't know, maybe somebody else did, but Shelly would be mortified if I told you that, but that's why I waited until this service. But anyway, it illustrates the kind of trouble your tongue can get you into, and that brings us to today's message. So James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, as we continue in our series, Faith Works. And here we find faith has a lot to do with the use of the tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder. Whenever the will, whatever the will, or wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire cycle or course or will of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, sisters, those things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same source both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Well, James is not just giving us advice. I mean, that was a a heap of of good advice. And we could, I guess, just close the book and say, watch your words. Hear me? Watch your words. But it's a little bit more than that. 
Because James is really bringing faith into the picture when it comes to the use of our tongue. That really has a lot to do with who's in control. This is about control. In fact, the control of the tongue is the test of who controls us. If you're out of control, your tongue is out of control. If your tongue is leading you into trouble that you didn't intend to get in trouble uh, over, uh, it may be, I would say, it's a, it's a clear sign that you're out of control. And when we're out of control, um, in fact, even when we're in control, we need a higher power, right? We need one of greater control who is constructive and positive and always does good, and that's our Lord. Well, because of the dangers of the tongue, James begins with the subject of teaching, and he says, uh, not all of you should apply. Because if you're teaching, you are subject to greater judgment, a stricter uh, standard of judgment. And this reminds us of things that Jesus taught us. In fact, James in verse 12 actually uh, refers very specifically to something that Jesus taught. And throughout his letter, there are clear references to Jesus and his teaching. But Jesus taught this very thing. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, on the day of judgment, we will give account for our words. That's a sobering thought. Do you ever just take inventory of your life? Ever think back on things you've long forgotten? Every once in a while, I remember some doozies. And it's... Uh, it's kind of scary that I did some of the things that I did, said some of the things that I said. Here, Jesus teaches us that words are powerful. And indeed, we need to watch our words because in words, in the power of the tongue, is life and death, we read in Proverbs. So Jesus says, by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 17 and 18, he says, it's not what goes in or enters the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person, because what comes out of the mouth comes out of the heart. Words expose the real you. And then, again, Jesus uh, in Luke 6, 43 through 45, every tree is known by its fruit. He says that's true of people too. Words are the fruit of the heart, revealing a good person or bad person. Quote, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think it's interesting that in these opening words, when James talks about teaching, he includes himself. He says, uh, he says, you know, we shouldn't all try to be teachers because we're open to stricter judgment. 
And listen, it's hard to control the tongue. We all stumble a lot. That's what he says. We all stumble. We all slip a lot. We all make mistakes. And so he encourages us to uh, realize that we're accountable for what we do with our tongues. If a person doesn't slip, he says, that person is perfect. And indeed, he says in verse 3, able to control the whole person. So, you know, if you've had trouble dieting or with some other habit, listen, if you could control the tongue, those things would be a snap because you'd be a person of self-control. When I was listening to this, it reminded me of the cardinal virtues, the four cardinal virtues. Are you familiar with them? They're a big deal in antiquity. Philosophers mention it. Traditions mention it. Christian, Jewish. The four cardinal virtues have nothing to do with Catholicism. In other words, they're the essential virtues. They're the core virtues. And they are wisdom, courage, self-control, and justice. And they're cardinal because if you take one away, well, you impoverish the others. In other words, they need each other. It's that number of four. For example, think about this. If you, if you want wisdom, courage, and justice, well, you've got to have self-control because without self-control, the others won't exist. So these four help each other. They're you know, kind of like a superhero movie or something where they, your superpowers all come together to defeat the enemy. But it brings to mind how important self-control is. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We sometimes forget that. We get started with love, joy, peace, patience. But self-control is in there. Self-control is essential to growing up. In fact, that's what it's all about. We want, if, you have, if you're a parent, if you have children, you want your children to grow up. And that, how does that manifest itself? Well, self-discipline, self-control. They show they're responsible. When they say something and they make a promise, they keep it. I'll meet you at 3 o'clock, and there they are waiting for you. When they speak, they speak truth. People who can't do those simple things lack self-control. You can't be a leader without self-control. And so forth. And certainly, you can't be wise, you can't be courageous, and you can't do justice. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Courage is having that inner fortitude and strength to do it, even if it's hard. Self-control, as we have alluded, is mastery of ourselves, and justice is to be fair and not selfish. And with those things in mind, I thought, as I look at our world today, and you might even ask yourself this question, 
Who are your heroes? Who do you emulate? Who do you look up to? When you grow up, who do you want to be? Or who do you admire? Who would you like to like you? Who would you like to hang out with? Let me ask you this. In these people that we want to emulate and like us and be like and hold up as models, maybe even heroes, I just want to ask you, are they wise? Do they show courage? Do they show self-control? Do they uphold and practice justice? These qualities need to be there in the people we admire. And I think if you give it a second thought, you'll realize they're in Jesus. He was every bit of every one of these four cardinal virtues. And we need heroes, people to emulate and admire, but sometimes who we uphold, who we favor, who we say, these are our celebrities, these are our cool people, full of selfishness, run by wealth and greed, lack courage, no justice, it's all about me. Just think about that. This thing of self-control and being able to control the tongue is not a minor thing. The tongue is the true test of self-control. It's a small thing, but don't let its size fool you. And James examines the potential, he exposes the power of the tongue, and he explains or solves the puzzle of the tongue. And I want to move through these verses quite quickly. In verses 3, 4, and 5, we have some illustrations and comparisons, small and great, small and great. But he starts with the horse. Probably uh, it was triggered by what he had to say about self-control because the wor- one of the words that he uses for self-control and in some of our translations, and it's perfectly legit, um, it's translated self-control, but the word is a strong picture word. It's a metaphor word to bridle to put a bit in the mouth of a horse. So what he's saying is able to bridle, able to control the whole body. Now, that might have come to his mind. He used the same word back in chapter 1, verse 26, when he's talked about true religion. He says, you think you've got true religion? Well, unless you can bridle your own tongue, it ain't happening. So now he brings that word bridle back in when he's talking about self-control, and maybe it's an association, but the image is clear, and and he goes right to the idea of a horse. And then, in the next verse, of of a ship. Now, just before we look at the horse and the ship, you gotta realize that these are the main means of travel on land and sea. 
If you want to get somewhere, the optimal means of travel, you know, in terms of speed and covering distance, a horse. And if you want to go from here to Alexandria, you're going to need a ship. He says, if you put a small bit in a horse, you can take that powerful animal and make it go wherever you want it to go. And then he says, think of a massive ship. Let's, do, let's move from a strong, mighty horse. And by the way, how many of you have ridden a horse? Not everybody? Oh, you got to put that on your bucket list. But I want you to know, when you get on a horse for the first time, you feel the power. And it's a little nerve-wracking. I mean, if you're at a, some kind of a carnival and they've got you in a little, walking around somebody, now. Nah. But if you're, you know, out in the country and, and you're going to go for a ride and that horse starts walking and then it starts galloping and then it starts, and if it gets into a full stride, I want you to know, the first time, maybe even the second and third, you feel that enormous amount of power and you realize this is dangerous. And it really is. There are some people who have been thrown from horses that are maimed. But all because of a small bit, you're able to manage and control and maneuver that horse. Then he moves in verse 4 to great ships. Now he adds the adjective great. So sometimes we translate it massive ships. These are big, but the wind blows it, and that's, that's the source of your power, you know? They, they, that, they didn't have any kind of steam or other combustible engine. They sail. The winds blow these massive ships. And he says, but even with fierce winds, mighty winds, a small rudder, comparatively small to the size of the ship, the, the person navigating, he uses the word navigating, the person navigating that ship can make that ship go wherever he wants. Now, verse 5, what's the next comparison? What's the next thing he says? He goes from massive ships to big boasts. And that's exactly the words that are used. Some just say boasts, but it's great boasts. Great boasts. What about them? What's behind them? The tongue. And what are boasts? Exaggerations. So what I think he is bringing into view here is small things can do great things. Sometimes small things can manage massive things and we can utilize a horse, a mighty vessel, but when it comes to a small tongue, it is the source of great boasts, great exaggerations, or exaggerated claims. 
In every other case he, he has in view who's in control. With horses, it's us. He actually uses we. We're in control, he says, with a horse. If it has a bit in its mouth. Otherwise, nah, nah. Or in a large ship, the navigator. But what about the tongue? He doesn't answer that question. He doesn't mention a, a, a rider. He doesn't mention a pilot. He just says the tongue is a source of great boasts. And how big? Well, what does he say in the second half of verse 5? Behold, I'm going to tell you, look at this. Here's how big. And he goes on then in the second part of the verse to say, how small a fire, how large a forest set ablaze. There's your comparison. Small tongue, great boasts. Small tongue, like a small fire. Great forests are set on fire. So he moves from potential to power in verse, the second half of verse 5. And we're really familiar with the devastation of fire. Just this last year, within the last 12 months, within the last year, massive fires, two record-setting fires, the campfire, deadliest fire in California history, at least on record. And then we have the ranch fire, which was the largest wildfire in California history. It's amazing to me to think of the time I've spent in paradise, the town, and it's not there anymore. It's gone. It may never recover. That's fire. 85 people that we know of, more are still missing. 85 people. If we had 85 people get up and leave the room, it would be a poignant reminder of those who lost their lives. If we had a record of who they were, what they did, whether they were good or bad, fire's indiscriminate. James wants to evoke that power. It is, every descriptive he uses of fire is it is wild. It is out of control. It doesn't play by the rules. It's unstable. When I was a kid growing up, uh, some of the greatest power that was in the hands of everyday kinds of people, if you will, outside of, you know, scientists and the kind of supernatural was nitroglycerin. In all the movies, you know, nitroglycerin was that, that kind of unstable and everybody had to care. Oh, it just heightened the tension. Everybody was trying to be so careful with it. Well, that may not be uh, a native illustration for you, but, but you get the idea. James is talking about something volatile, dangerously volatile. And he wants us to be aware of that. The tongue, in fact, in verse 6, he did, I know how we translate it, and that's good, but you got to see what James says. He just opens verse 6. The tongue is fire. 
See, not just a fire, the tongue is fire. He really wants to emphasize the tongue is not, look it, if if you had a small boa constrictor and a baby, you wouldn't lay them on the grass and walk into the kitchen. There are some things that are natively dangerous, and that's what James is saying. In fact, he gives us a description of it. He says, it is a world of trouble. You know, now we flippantly, I mean, sometimes, that person is a world of trouble. That's what James is quite literal about. He says, it's a world of iniquity. What is iniquity? It's wrongdoing. What is wrongdoing? It's unrighteousness. In other words, the tongue is not constructive. It's not positive. It's not the buddy that you want to invite over when you're sad and you need some encouragement. He says it's a member of our bodies that is toxic. The word stain is used. I don't know if that's the imagery so much, except I almost think of something that is toxic because that is something that stains in a poisoning sort of sense. And I think that's really the image that he wants to get across. It sets everything ablaze. He says the entire wheel, literally, the wheel, the scope, the entirety of life. In other words, there's nothing that the tongue can't damage. There's nothing out of bounds. Where does the destructive power of the tongue come from? Gehenna. Where did Gehenna come from? Well, Gehenna is a kind of a shortened or stylized way, anglicized for sure, it refers to the ravine of Hinnom. That was a, a ravine or valley adjacent to Jerusalem. It's still there, but back, goes back into the Old Testament. It was a place of dumping. You guys wouldn't hold a picnic out at the dump or the landfill. We're even pickier and uh, more fastidious about what we put in landfills and how we recycle. But back then, it went into the ravine of Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom. Jesus picked up on that because it was, I mean, everything. We use trash bags, right? We have a lid on ours so I can push it with my foot, and when it opens, I chew that stench, rotting stuff. That's the Valley of Hinnom. And burning stuff, too. It was constantly on fire. And that was good. They wanted to burn up as much of that junk as they could. Dead bodies, filth of every kind. It was the... And Jesus picked up on that image and started using it to describe judgment and punishment, a place nobody wants to be, it became a strong image for that. But then it becomes a cipher, you see, for all that is in opposition to God. Devil, that is Satan. So 
because that's the place that God created, if you will, the place of punishment just for the devil and his demons. So he says here, it sets everything ablaze, and its destructive power comes from Gehenna. It comes from hell. In other words, it's what is in opposition to God, what is out of control, what is wild, what is unstable, what is fickle, what is destructive, what is punishing, what is cursing, everything that opposes the sorts of things that God stands for, which are good and healthy, it comes ultimately from that which opposes God. And in this case, it's symbolized by hell itself which is the punishment for those things that God will ultimately destroy because there's just no place for it. So that then brings us to the puzzle because how is it that we can be so contradictory? In verse 7 and 8, he says, we can control all other creatures, but we can't control ourselves. So the small member of the tongue, we can't control because we can't control ourselves, even though we are the, so to speak, pinnacle of God's creation and can control others. We're in a pickle, you see. We're in trouble. And he illustrates that contradiction in the following verses where he basically describes blessing God and cursing others who are in the image of God, all human creation is in the image of God. He says, we bless God, we curse each other. How is that? Is that not contradictory? We recognize that God is the creator. He is the source of blessing. He is the source of good. He is source even of fashioning us in his image. And then we turn around and, and curse another he says, that, that, that's not, something's really wrong. He says, you don't go to a fig tree and expect to pluck olives. You don't, you don't go to a, a grapevine and expect to get figs. You don't stoop to get a drink of fresh water and find that it's salty. And you're not going to come back the next day and find it fresh. You see, this goes back even to what Jesus said. He says, it's not what goes into the mouth, it's what comes out of it. Because what comes out of it tells us who we really are. It, it, it expresses the reality of our heart. James is saying, we're, we're in a whole whoop of trouble if we're not in God's control because the tongue is going to express that contradictory life that opposes everything good, even though we bless him and we recognize his goodness. He says, we are contradictory. We're as contradictory as a fig tree that produces olives and a grapevine that produces figs. 
What's he want us to do? He wants us to control the tongue by letting God control us. That's the power that we need. I uh, thought of saying, well, when I'm, you know, we're going to have lots of reminders. James includes himself. Remember, he says, uh, we, we slip up a lot. But let's let every reminder remind us, you know what, God could do a better job of this. I've got to learn to turn control of my life over to him. And especially, especially when issues of selfishness are on the line. Usually that's, that's when we are least charitable. And that's why I want to just give you a little encouragement. Stop in the name of love. Some of you remember that song? Stop in the name of love. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I just wanted to give you something to remember, though. You know, that's, if we could just stop and realize, okay, I got to do this in the name of love. And really, God is, who, who, who is the name of love but God? He really is. He's the artificer. He's the model. And he's the power. And that's what we need. We need love to control our tongues. We need God to control our tongues. So that instead of tearing down and destroying and chewing up, and all of a sudden, we can really watch our words. I don't mean, I'm warning you, watch your words. I mean, really, watch your words. When you speak words of love and God's direction into the lives of others, you can actually watch for what is going to happen. The change of countenance when you speak words of forgiveness. When, the change of look, maybe sadness being lifted, a frown turning gradually into a smile, a sparkle returning to the eye because you have brought encouragement into their lives, which that day, or for some days, has been filled with, with great disenchantment and discouragement. Words have power. Words have power. I read this week, uh, somebody tweeted... Uh, about their parents celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary and their theme, the theme of 65 years of marriage has been Psalm 34.3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I love that. What if you looked at your spouse or your friend and you said, let us exalt his name together. Let us magnify the Lord. That's two people giving him control. And I'll tell you, 
That's the way to grow friendship. I remember uh, reading this week that Jesus in Mark 12, verse 24, said to some people, listen to this, he said, you are wrong because you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. I would hate for God to say, John, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You know what? I think a lot of times the Lord could pull us up short in the use of our tongue and say, you know what? You're wrong. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That's exciting. Faith works because we let the Lord inform, empower, work through us, bring life into a world of death, bring resurrection into entombed lives because we can actually, well, the Proverbs said it, the power of life and death is in the tongue. We have resurrection life in Jesus Christ. We got to start using it with our tongues. There's not one Christian alive in this world or the past that is a Christian that doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. There are no Christians without the resurrection of Jesus because there's no church, there's no new work, there's no new covenant, there's no new life, and that's who we are. A new people, a new race, a new covenant, new power. We have the Holy Spirit in us. That's what James is talking about. Stop in the name of love. And let the Lord take over. Let's stand. I'm going to pray and remind you that uh, leaders and spouses are going to be down here, elders, deacons, staff. If you'd like to pray this morning, maybe you came in with a burden and you'd like to bring that with someone else, and let's pray together about that. Maybe you want to rededicate your life. Maybe the Spirit touched you in some way and said, you know, quit fighting me. Give in. Do it my way. Take the risk. Trust me. Well, if that's a part of your prayer this morning, we'd like to pray with you. Maybe it's to intercede for someone else. Whatever it is, we invite you to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It, it's so powerful because the truth is so powerful and the work of your Spirit. We praise you for Jesus. And we praise you that uh, we know you and we are your children. We love you, Lord, and we pray praise to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.